Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 2, The Peace, Part 1. Now that this podcast has been good and introduced, let's get into the real deal history. Much like Rome, World War II wasn't built in a day. It took years of twists and turns to reach a critical mass that dwarfed the one that the world in 1919 had just emerged from. The Entente's leadership might not have fully appreciated all the implications, but the world had changed forever. And the first acts of this new world were the treaties that ended the old war and helped set the stage for the new. So, a useful bit of table setting will be the frameworks that were put into place as a result of the Paris Peace Conference. This was a gigantic gathering of the major victors, as well as scores of petitioners hoping to advance their national causes. The major document to come out of this conference was, of course, the Treaty of Versailles. This treaty holds a special place in history as one of the most derided documents to ever be put into action. Europe had just uh, seen the end of the biggest war ever, and was probably hoping for a new Treaty of Westphalia to totally rewrite the rules on how nations interacted and behaved. Instead, it reads like a divorce document where one side totally took the other to the cleaners. While that treaty has to do with imposing punishment on a defeated Germany, there would be a series of other treaties to handle the other vanquished central powers that I will touch on. I'm not going to comment on how justified or unjustified the terms are beyond pointing out, one, Germany launched the war knowing full well what the consequences of failure would be, and two, they had their own history of imposing harsh treaties on defeated opponents. See the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War and the terms that Germany had imposed on Russia just a year before at Versailles at Brest-Litovsk. Speaking of which, there was a prequel peace treaty to those that came out of Paris. I'm not going to go over all the terms of the Brest-Litovsk treaty because it was almost immediately swept away, though there are a couple of important lingering consequences to know about. First, it established a tentative peace between Germany and the nascent Bolshevik government in Russia, not yet called the Soviet Union, which also established early recognition for Lenin's new regime to act as a legitimate government. The second is that it ceded huge tracts of land over to Germany. You know all those new countries that broke off from the USSR at the end of the Cold War? The ones in between Poland and Russia? Well, all that. Like I said, it was harsh. In fact, German leadership realized when making the Brest-Litovsk Treaty that they had really, really better not lose, or else France was going to ride a train over them in the resulting peace negotiations. The vast new Eastern European Empire was supposed to be Germany's new Lebensraum, but when the Kaiserreich collapsed, so too did this new empire. And coupled with the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the southwest of this region, all of a sudden, all of Central and most of Eastern Europe was suddenly caught in a colossal vacuum as the old empires of Europe vanished. The Entente leadership was to take on the responsibility to put everything back together again. A full accounting of the Paris Conference is far beyond this podcast, but if this, but if this episode uh, piques your interest in any way, uh, please check out Margaret Macmillan's book, Paris 1919, alternatively titled uh, Peacemakers. At 20 years old, it is still the most accessible and informative history of the conference. I only hope to give an accounting of some of the larger twists and turns of how the conference developed, and contrast the initial idealism that was in full bloom with the final result that the world got in the series of treaties to come out of those six months in Paris. 
The conference was dominated by the so-called Big Three, the U.S., U.K., and France. Sometimes there was the Big Four, which added Italy to the group. More rarely, there was the Big Five, which included Japan. Leaders from each nation made the conference as well, with the UK Prime Minister David Lloyd George heading the combined imperial delegation alongside the Commonwealth leaders, Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando representing Italy, President Woodrow Wilson being the first sitting US president to leave the country, and Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau acting as the host. Japan was also accorded a large voice at the conference befitting its great power status, but as its interests were focused in East Asia and the Pacific, many of the proceedings didn't really interest them too much. Notably absent were representatives from Germany or Russia. The Germans, as well as other defeated powers, Austria, Hungary, now considered separate for the purposes of making a peace deal, and Bulgaria had representatives in Paris, but all were, by and large, forbidden from taking part in the deliberations among the victors. They would be presented with the final treaties and expected simply to sign. The absence of the Russians has been criticized as well, but in the defense of the Entente leaders, Lenin was hanging by a thread in Moscow. The Bolsheviks were mired in a civil war and suffering from a famine, the combination of which would devastate Russia worse than even the world war that had immediately preceded it. Plus, communication with the Bolsheviks was practically non-existent, and just getting basic news out of the red areas of the country was a challenge. So already, two of the major powers of the world would be excluded from offering their opinions on what was expected to be the basis of a new world order. It might all have been for the best, though, as it proved hard enough to get a consensus among the victors alone. Part of this trouble came from the diverging interests of each of the victorious powers, and partly because of the clashing personalities among the leaders. And among those leaders, it was the eventual Big Three that held the most influence. Lloyd George was charming and diplomatic, but was also terribly ill-informed about the greater world. I mean, you can assume that most folks, past and present, don't really know a lot about the greater world, but they aren't expected to be peacemakers. His capacity to brush aside the experiences and cultures of tens of millions of people as mere detail was limitless. It was kind of an embarrassment even back in those days, and was downright dangerous when when establishing a lasting peace relied on adequately putting together a multi-ethnic jigsaw set right in the heart of Europe. The fact that the primary British interest was to secure a quick peace in order to get their global trade empire going again didn't bode well for a well-thought-out or nuanced agreement. The next was Clemenceau, who was more straightforward. Among the three, he was the classic power politician, suspicious of idealistic yet unproven ideas like the League of Nations that Wilson had pitched to them, and single-mindedly focused on a single goal, securing the safety of France. And that safety, in his and virtually every other French leader's mind, entailed getting the harshest terms possible imposed on Germany. Everything the French sought revolved around this, and even topics like the creation of the new nations in Central Europe or the establishment of the League would become tools the French would use to constrain the Germans further. This did keep the French position clear and simple, but it also meant that attempts to show even the slightest bit of mercy to the Germans would send Clemenceau into a frenzy. Clemenceau himself was personally abrasive and sarcastic, which was only exacerbated by by always being quick with a joke at his colleagues' expense. 
Lloyd George and Wilson very much so had their differences, but Clemenceau's personality drove the two together and against him to a self-defeating level. And then there was Wilson. Wilson, as befitting the American of the group, was the preacher. Far more than the others, Wilson came to Paris to change the world. He didn't come for prizes, or even to specifically punish any single country. Any change in fortune between nations would merely be a natural balancing of the scales. He came over, claiming instead to create a fair world, a just world. A world where people got to decide their own destinies, free from the aristocracies of the past. Where intervention among nations would be of a humanitarian character, a line of thinking best displayed by the president's brainchild, the League of Nations. Wilson was by far the most internationally popular leader, and was met with euphoric crowds upon his arrival. His image was made synonymous with peace and justice, and Wilsonism was the hope of millions. The trouble with all of this would start once the conference got underway, though, and the reality that not everybody would get what they wanted settled in. You may have noticed in my description of Wilson's aims that he thought in broader terms than the Brits or French. The vagueness of Wilson's message meant that in practice it could be almost anything to anybody. The defeated powers, especially the Germans and Hungarians, hoped they could keep the territories where their nationalities were in the majority, regardless of claims from the secondary Entente members. New nations, like Poland and Czechoslovakia, saw it as a message for them to seize what they imagined to be their just homelands. Victors like Italy and Romania took it as confirmation that their self-determination meant a natural expansion of their borders. That all these nations and more immediately jostled against each other, scrambling to snatch up overlapping claims that each interpreted as in keeping with Wilson's message. The dissolution with that message would be swift. And that's just the European response. Back at home, Wilson had a little problem. His political party, the Democrats, had lost heavily in the 1918 midterms, and any passage of agreements Wilson made would have to go through Senate Majority Leader Henry Cabot Lodge. You might take that and think that this was your standard Democrat versus Republican thing that we're all used to these days. I don't want to dismiss that idea. Uh, Factional politics is inherently adversarial. But Lodge and Wilson detested each other on a personal level. Wilson was the scion of Virginia, a lawyer and former president of Princeton University. He was also self-righteous to a degree even other Americans found off-putting, and quickly grew to despise any who questioned his wisdom once he made up his mind. And unlike his counterpart world leaders and Senator Lodge himself, Wilson was a newcomer to politics. He had been governor of New Jersey for a scant two years before becoming United States president in 1913. Lodge, on the other hand, had been in politics for almost 40 years. While Wilson had wanted to keep out of the war, Lodge pressed for the U.S. to join with the Entente. Wilson wanted to create global institutions among nations to ensure security. Lodge believed that was impractical. Wilson couldn't stand Lodge's constant questioning and resistance. Lodge thought Wilson was a wishy-washy coward. This really wasn't going to end well between the two of them. Their working relationship certainly wasn't helped when Wilson snubbed the Republicans completely and refused to invite any of them as part of the delegation to Paris. 
Again, with modern politics, that might not only seem normal, but also wise. But this was more publicly not inviting somebody to a party and expecting them to help you out later. And then there were the sentiments of each nation that had to be contended with. The only one that had been committed to crushing Germany had been France. The UK, for its part, only wanted a happier equilibrium on the continent, which, granted, meant that the Germans had to be neutralized as an overseas threat. By 1919, passions had cooled among the British, though, and now the public just wanted their soldiers to return home. Italy had been enticed with territorial conquest, and the U.S. was primarily interested in ending the fighting. The contrasting motivations would cause clashes among the Entente that were never really resolved. It didn't help there, were, there was a power imbalance between all of them. The United States was relatively untouched compared to its partners, and was already seen as a rising juggernaut that all the others would have to reckon with. Things were going to be fine for them regardless. The UK had already gotten what it wanted. Germany's fleet was scuttled, its allies were broken to pieces, and its overseas influence dismantled. The UK didn't have a whole lot else to gain by beating down the Germans beyond keeping their allies happy. This left both the French and Italians, not to mention all the lesser powers, on the back foot and having to justify their desired gains. The French had the added anxiety in that their strategic partner in the Russian Empire no longer existed. Before, they could be relied, relied on to be a future counterweight to the Germans. Now that they were off the board, France was now stuck appealing to the sympathies of the UK, which um, was not a great long-term solution given the British indifference to commitment. Suffice to say, things were off to a rough start before the site of the conference was even chosen. And to top all that off, the Brits and Americans preferred hosting the conference in Switzerland or some other neutral ground. This drove Clemenceau to throw a fit, with Lloyd George claiming he actually cried about it. So yeah, not great. Anyway, those were some of the big reoccurring issues that loomed over the conference as it got going. Now, the conference officially began on January 18, 1919, although the Big Four had been meeting earlier in the month. Delegates, support staff, academic specialists, and the press crammed themselves into Parisian hotel rooms, and watched anxiously as one of the largest, if not the largest, of international conferences got going. The first order of business on the docket, per Wilson's insistence, was the formation of a League of Nations. Many of you will doubtlessly be familiar with its general concept as a kind of proto-United Nations. Basically, to guarantee world peace and prevent another major war from breaking out, there would be a kind of union among the nations of the world that would provide a forum for international consensus to be reached and disputes resolved among the greater community. This was the idea, at least. But like most of Wilson's plans, it wasn't entirely thought out. It was certainly true that the former system of great powers vying against each other and operating only according to their own separate interests was totally discredited. Hundreds of miles of bombed-out trenches and millions of dead will kind of do that. But even though the old system couldn't be returned to, something like the League had never really been attempted before. An actual international body connecting member countries without being a part of them, and whose purpose was to create peace without catering to the interests of a specific nation, 
or group of nations. Moreover, this would be an organization where each member nation had a voice before the whole world, something that the Gentlemen's Club of Great Powers had previously blocked. Wilson was all for it. His political opponents back in the States feared a loss of national sovereignty and were prepared to resist it. The British were conditionally all right with the idea. They certainly were interested in it as a mechanism to ensure stability without overly committing their own empire. Plus, they assumed that the U.S. would be taking a leading role, which would helpfully serve as another bind on the U.S. to the European powers. The British public at large were also wildly in favor of the proposed institution, so the politicians certainly weren't losing anything in the way of popularity by agreeing to the idea. The French had their suspicions about it, suspecting the U.S. and U.K. of plotting against them somehow. That and it was another distraction from the pressing German business. They were, however, intrigued by the possibilities of an international body that could give them some cover should their eastern neighbor turn aggressive again. The French, far more than anyone else, were inclined to add a military element to the League from the start. If the League had its own peacekeeping army, or at least its own general staff with authority over the armies of the member states, that would go a long way to ensuring France's safety. Of course, both the U.S. and U.K. saw this as going way too far for a league still in its concept stage and refused to hand over that much national power. The French tried a different tact by having disarmament benchmarks worked in. Again, the Anglo-Americans weren't there to commit. These disagreements dragged on from late January to the 13th of February, when the first draft of the League's proposal was completed. The French gave way on their demands for some type of military commitment, although they did so under the idea that giving concessions here just meant they would get more of their way when it came time to sticking it directly to the Germans. The League would have a general assembly of member countries, with an executive council similar to the UN Security Council. The Big Five would be permanent members with rotating spots for other member states. The Council would provide direction for the League's business. In addition, there would be agencies set up within the League, much like the United Nations. They would work to fight against arms trading, human trafficking, and assist in standardizing laws between nations. One of the most successful of those was the International Labor Organization, which was actually folded over into the UN after that body was established. The other responsibility that Wilson foresaw the League undertaking once it got up and going was in handling Germany's colonies and the Ottoman Empire's Arab provinces. This one came as something of a shock to the Europeans. They had every intention of divvying up those spoils amongst themselves. Wilson, though, thought annexations vulgar and supported having the League hold them in a kind of trust. Wilson's counterparts were perplexed. Their imperial brains had trouble processing the idea of not scooping up land inhabited by Africans and Arabs. They questioned how far this proposed mandate system was supposed to go. After all, much of Central Europe was in such a shambles that you can hardly call many of the governments over there real nations. Would they also come under the League's care? Wilson, though, was reassuring. The system he proposed wouldn't apply to white people, of course. No, the Africans certainly wouldn't have their own nations, according to him. And while the Middle Eastern territories had been urbanized since the start of human civilization, 
they weren't quite at the level needed to grant them independent states. If you haven't picked up on it yet, the high aspirations of Wilsonism has a race problem going on. The British were the first to agree, not wanting to antagonize the Americans over colonies that they already had plenty of. And they probably assumed they could finagle the emerging mandate system into de facto colonialism anyway. And since one of the conditions of the mandates would be that each was open to economic development from any country, they could be a handy backdoor in the other colonial empires. The French and others weren't quite so sanguine about the proposal. They wanted every resource they could squeeze out of Africa and Asia, moralities be damned. And moreover, they had discovered during the war that African colonial troops could fight just as well as a white man. Of course, their takeaway from this was that they needed more Africans to fight and die for them. The British really didn't like the idea of France raising a gigantic army of African troops and insisted that any peoples living in the mandates weren't obligated to any military service. The French would spend months continuously raising the point, only to be shot down. They would even try to slip in cryptic wording about defense of the mother country within the fine print of the agreements concerning the mandates, but never got away with it. There was also the problem of the UK's own brood when it came to the mandates. South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand all expected to annex German colonies for themselves. From late January on, the three dominions would make long-winded presentations, arguing why they should have a free hand in their desired conquests, and how they were natural choices to bring civilization to the natives. Wilson was unimpressed, and continued his opposition to the annexations. The British thought they could cut a deal between their dominions and Wilson, dividing up the mandates by status. A-class territories would be the former Ottoman lands, which were already on the perceived edge of self-governance, and would receive a great deal of autonomy. B-classes would be run by the mandated power, though would be subject to league rules. C-classes would more or less be the lands claimed by the Dominions, and were free to be run like an integrated part of the country who governed it. The Dominions agreed to this on January 29th, but of course, herding cats never works out well. Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes dropped an anonymous story in the British press that ran on the very next day. It claimed that Britain was neglecting its interests for the sake of babying Wilson's unrealizable demands. That was also the day that the class system for the mandates would be brought before the Supreme Council. And yes, Wilson saw the article. And yes, he immediately knew where it originated. Hughes deeply hated Wilson for a perceived slight on an international get-together, and if Wilson didn't hate Hughes before, he did now. The meeting pretty quickly went off the rails after Lloyd George made the initial pitch for the compromise. Wilson responded by lecturing and rambling for a long while at the imperial delegates. He specifically singled out Hughes, angrily asking asking him if he was prepared to commit Australia to resisting the wishes of the world in hanging on to the former German colonies in the South Pacific. Hughes first pretended not to hear the question, but when pressed, said that he would. The New Zealand Prime Minister even backed him up on that. Clemenceau was delighted watching the Dominions cause a scene between the UK and the Americans, but somehow the South African representative managed to intervene and actually get everybody calmed down. 
The South Africans wanted Southwest Africa, modern-day Namibia, very badly, so they didn't want this deal screwed up. Wilson was able to pull himself together and, slightly embarrassed at losing his cool, agreed to the class system of mandates. The Middle East would get a measure of autonomy, most of the African territory would be open to international, international development, and the Dominions and Japan would de facto get to govern as they saw fit in their territories. Funny how Hughes directly provoked Wilson and got away with it. Other than the League, much of the work in that first month, from mid-January to mid-February, was spent hearing out the petitions of the smaller powers. Romania, Serbia, and Greece were all allies who had standing armies already moving into their claimed areas in Central Europe. And while possession is nine-tenths the law, they were obliged to get their gains recognized at the conference. They did have the automatic sympathy of being friends who had already made sacrifices, and in the case of the Serbs, great sacrifices. Their claims did raise that awkward self-determination issue, though. The Romanians, for example, were pushing for concessions that would see millions of Hungarians and Bulgarians within their borders. The Serbs were looking to incorporate all South Slav areas of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, whose inhabitants thought they were getting a federated state that unified each region. The Serbs assumed they would get a more centralized nation where they got to govern all the others themselves. There had been the little fact that the Croatians, Bosnians, and Slovenes had all served the Austrians loyally until the end of the empire. Their claims also overlapped with the Italians, who wanted those delightful Adriatic beaches. The Greeks were a little easier. They snatched a strip of land on the Aegean Sea from Bulgaria, and that was initially it. But there was a Turkey just to the east that they wanted to carve up as well, and a prize like that necessitated outside help. So the Supreme Council had to get down to the business of getting data and experts on all these areas changing hands. To fulfill their own promises of, of self-determination, they would have to confirm which ethnicities lived where and who had the better claim. And popular knowledge of those areas was no better then than it is now, so many of the decision makers were operating from a, from a position of ignorance which led them to defer oftentimes to their allies, which, you know, caving to the wishes of nations and the throes of land-grab highs can't have future repercussions. Nope. By mid-February, there was a break in the proceedings. President Wilson had been hearing murmurs of dissent towards the League of Nations and felt he had to return back to the United States for a couple of weeks. He arrived on February 24th in Boston, Lodge's home turf. The same day, he gave a speech to a welcoming crowd where he espoused how he labored at Paris for a better world, and that any who opposed his designs were acting malevolently. He wrapped up what must have been a really fun speech by passing out draft copies of the League Covenant. The crowd was just normal folks there to hear the president. Wilson hadn't given copies to anybody else in the States yet, like, say, anybody in Congress. Lodge, for his part, was understandably miffed, both when he heard about the speech and that nobody had gotten a copy of the Covenant to look over. Two days later, Wilson was in Washington, D.C., and doing a terrible job at pitching the idea of the League. A dinner party at the White House backfired badly when Wilson started lecturing Lodge and some of the other guests. Once back at the Senate, 
Lodge secured enough votes to reject the League Covenant as presented. It was now out in the public that there was a very real likelihood that the Americans would not be joining the League, something the other powers had not considered when approving the idea. It had been Wilson's baby, and it only made sense that the U.S. would be a core part of it. Now, that wasn't a given, and it looked as though Britain, France, Italy, and Japan might have to shoulder the burden of world leadership together. The obvious limitations of that group would give cause for disquiet as Wilson returned to Paris on March 14th. The mood upon his arrival was far more somber than it had been two months ago. Clemenceau had had a close call with an assassination attempt on the 14th of February. A crazed anarchist unloaded seven rounds at his back, but only managed to hit him once, which, given Clemenceau's portly nature, begs a broad side of the barn comparison. He was up and about in no time, but was understandably shaken from there on out. The literal parties of the conference continued in the temporary world capital, but the figurative one was over. Wilson's return coincided with a pivot to focusing on Germany. The armistice was in effect, but the war was still officially on. The British still maintained their blockade on German ports, which included foodstuffs. That this had been going on for the four months since the fighting had ended created a great deal of bitterness in Germany, and most of the Entente was looking to start sending food shipments. The French, though, believed that hunger was a good negotiating tactic, and figured a starving Germany couldn't very well reject peace terms. Then there was the question of how hard to beat on the Germans. Back in the fall, the Entente was thirsty for blood. Four months later, most everybody wanted to go home. The French were an entirely different matter. They wanted security, and getting Alsace-Lorraine back wasn't enough. Germany was still far more populous than France, and with a much higher economic ceiling. There was already a combined Entente army occupying the Rhineland of Germany, which appropriately encompasses everything west of the Rhine River. Clemenceau and the French did not see it as unreasonable to detach that region from Germany, or even annex the whole thing into France. This is where Clemenceau was playing a dangerous game. He knew his international partners would not accept either separation idea, but he couldn't look weak to his colleagues in the French parliament. They wanted vengeance. His idea of a compromise was allowing France a free hand to exploit parts of the Rhineland economically to help rebuild France, keep all the German troops on the east bank of the Rhine, and maybe keep a French military presence in the Rhineland as insurance. The Germans would continue to govern there, but France's security would be better insured. A smaller subcomponent of the Rhineland, the Saar region, along the French-German border was looked at as a target for further annexation. The compromise proposals were actually very close to what he ended up getting. To the east, France was also wholly in favor of the new Polish nation's claims along their border with Germany. The fact that millions of Germans lived in those areas was just icing on the cake for Clemenceau. Entering the spring, though, the stakes were getting very real for the peace conference. Food relief was starting to flow into Central and Eastern Europe under the guidance of future U.S. President Herbert Hoover, steving off a massive famine. Regardless of that success, there was still a great deal of chaos to go around in Europe. Revolutions had broken out across Germany, threatened to bring socialism to power there. A communist government had actually managed to seize control in Hungary. There were fears of domestic revolutions across the continent. 
and most ominously of all was the Red Army in Russia, currently bogged down in the Civil War, but seen nevertheless as a future menace to the stability of Europe. At the close of 1918, conservatives and liberals paid only a distant regard to the specter of socialism. Now that the fires were starting to spread, though, they sprang into reaction. France pressed for the eastern states to be given the highest possible amount of land from which to operate from, not just as a bulwark against Germany, but now also as one against international communism. Slovakians would be wedded unhappily to the Czechs. The Romanians would get virtually every territorial demand from their neighbors. Serbia would be the core of the new South Slav states, and Poland would get a tacit approval for their eastward expansion into Ukraine and Belarus. If the nationalities on the ground didn't gel with Wilson's ideals, too bad. And if there were protests, well, the smaller states weren't above just lying to the Supreme Council about who lived where or what the locals thought one way or the other. It was amazing enough that a group of imperial nations made the pretense of caring in the first place. Unfortunately for France, the new or newly enhanced eastern states couldn't possibly be expected to replace what the old Russian Empire had brought to the table. The nations in the east were terribly unproven in the configurations they eventually took, and there simply was no precedent for what became the new order in Europe. And even with all the lovely additions to each nation's real estate market, they were all individually second-class local powers at best. They would require aid that France could not provide to be a counterweight to the Germans or Russians. And they would have to act in unison, which was impossible. Everyone but the Poles got along well enough, but that didn't make them automatic allies. And the Poles especially had a gift for antagonizing their neighbors that would cost them down the road. And worst of all for the French, the other Entente powers agreed that the Bolsheviks posed a serious problem. The reason why I say worst of all is because the conclusion that the U.S. and U.K. came to was that Germany had to be quickly reintegrated into the world community in order to put them to work resisting communism. That meant the reparations the French were expecting to be paid out would be less than what they were planning on. This created a row between the French and British that lasted until early April, when they agreed to Lloyd George's helpful suggestion of making a separate agreement on reparations two years later in 1921. The Germans were sure to pay something, though only when the can finally came firmly to rest after good cooking. The other terms were hashed out as well. The status of the Rhineland was agreed to, and everybody was pretty enthusiastic about disarming Germany as well. However, this progress came at a cost. Relations between the French and British were bottoming out, and both nations started regarding the other in terms of their old imperial rivalry. You would think the bonds of mutually losing a generation of male youth to senseless violence would create some form of camaraderie, but the chill felt during the German deliberations in March and April would be a precursor to a much more systemic failure to cooperate between the two nations. The back and forth also wore down Wilson, and those around him feared for his health. Just a spoiler, he's going to have a massive stroke in September 1919, incapacitating him for the rest of the short life ahead of him. So yeah, things were going that badly. As a little digression, uh, to clarify how all these deliberations worked, the Big Four were the primary clique of leaders whose meetings set the tone for the rest of the conference. They set the agenda they set the broad strokes of the terms, and were able to overrule specifics they didn't care for. 
In the modern day, national leaders have legions of experts compiling mountains of data and distilling it into succinct policy. This was four dudes in a room with some translators and maybe some aides. Yeah, experts were in town and available to offer their advice. The problem was that the four did not care to have things explained to them. All the committees running around and trying to get terms together for the multiple peace trees had to run everything through them. Going into the end of April, this has been going on for three months now. But hey, the German terms were about ready to go through, so progress. The Entente actually felt comfortable enough with the terms they had devised that they extended an invitation to the Germans to send some representatives out to Paris and hear the good, bad news. And if you guessed that there was going to be another always-something moment, congrats, you've been paying attention. Going into late April, it was finally time to start making final decisions on Italy's war aims. Now, I haven't mentioned Italy a whole lot, but that's because they haven't been terribly controversial figures here. They supported the League, especially when it secured them a top spot in the world leadership. They were all too happy to punish Germany, but weren't on a blood vendetta against them. They were, however, made certain promises before they joined World War I, and they expected some fulfillment. Specifically, they were looking for expansion on their alpine border and choice parts of the eastern Adriatic coastline, a region called Dalmatia in modern-day Croatia. More vaguely, they had been promised concessions in both Africa and the Middle East, but those hadn't really been elaborated upon. With most of the German terms wrapped, they wanted to do that now, before peace was declared. And they weren't the only ones feeling unheard at the conference. The focus on Germany and the League meant a lot of other issues weren't being addressed very quickly, if at all. Italy was just one of several, but they're the ones that will eventually make a big stink about it. But all that will have to wait for next week and part two of this episode. Join me then as we wrap up the Paris conference and learn just what exactly the losers and some of the winners are in for. Thank you again for listening.